Mithra is born on what became Christmas. Mithra is born on the winter solstice. Mithra was born of a virgin. The Mithras celebrated a communion where they uh, drank wine, which, by the way, their wine was spiked with Amanita, Muscaria, mushrooms, which grow under what kind of trees? Evergreen trees. What's the color scheme of Amanita, Muscaria mushrooms? Red and white, and then the evergreen is green. Well, there's the Christmas color scheme. At communion feast, they would eat bread that was circular in form and inscribed by a cross. Here's your communion wafer and also the breaking of the bread. Iconography of the bishops and the cardinals and so forth, you know, with these tall hats that they wear. Well, this is a preservation of the Phrygian cap, the, the red Mithraic cap. These white-robed figures would regularly come to meet with Mohammed, and he would go into a tent with them and sit with them in a circle, and no one else was allowed to come in. Salman the Persian, Salman of Farsi, he was the one putting the Quran into Muhammad's head, and that you know he was the puppet master on the scene. Welcome back to the Gnostic Informant, and you are about to attain true Gnosis. Today, one of my more um, anticipated guests, highly anticipated guests that I've been looking forward to is Dr. Jason Reza Giorgiani, author of Prometheism, Iranian Leviathan, and plenty other books. Check them out on Amazon if you haven't yet. And uh, welcome. Thanks for coming on. It's a pleasure to be with you, Neil. Thanks for the invitation. My pleasure as well. And uh, I want to get into the history of Mithra. Mithra is sort of an interesting character, sort of a mediator. But, uh, you know, I have a copy of an English version, an English translation of the Vedas, and I have the Mahabharata, and I have some of those uh, Indian epics. And there's Mithra in there too. Mithra's in Persian history, Mithra's in Roman mythology. Mithra's everywhere. So, where does Mithra come from? Where's the old, what's the oldest extent version of Mithra that we have? Well, uh, I think the oldest inscription that refers to Mithra is from about 1700 BC. And it's an interesting inscription because uh, basically it's in Sanskrit, but it was found in northern Iraq. And this is uh, one, of, one of a number of pieces of evidence for the fact that the Aryans came to India from elsewhere. Uh, so it seems that, um, you know, northern Iraq, which historically is Kurdistan, in other words, it's the Kurdish part of Iran, uh, was a homeland for those Aryans who eventually settled in northern India and, you know, who are loosely known as the Hindus in you know, um, Western discourse, uh, because they settled, you know, around the Indus River. And so it seems that the worship of Mithra was brought to northern India by these people who called themselves Arya, uh, the, the nobles. Um, and Mithra is actually one of the oldest of the Sanskrit gods. You know, uh, you have basically um, a... I wouldn't call it a trinity exactly, but you have 
three major figures in the oldest strata of Vedic religion, uh, Indra, Mitra, and Varuna. And Mitra, Varuna are sometimes hyphenated. They're referred to yes. together, right? And we can get that, you know, in greater depth and length because it turns out to be relevant to the feminine aspect of Mithra, which uh, eventually is split off as an independent deity. That's fascinating because I see the, the Mitra Varuna, like you said, hyphenated, and it's always a depiction of a man on this like snake body thing. And a, I've heard, I don't know how true this is. I mean, you could probably clarify this. Is that a, uh, it's sort of like a depiction of the Milky Way galaxy or the Milky Way in the sky. And like those, I guess there's like this big giant star in the middle. Or that where so I guess that's like a depiction of Mithra. I don't know if that if that's true or not. What do you what is that? I think in terms of the snake, it's a Typhonian kind of reference to uh, Varuna as a storm uh, goddess type figure. And um, eventually, what happens is that uh, Varuna gets split off of Mitra and becomes the goddess that the Iranians refer to as Anahita. Uh, but but to back up for a minute, the more important thing to grasp here, um, you know, before uh, endeavoring to understand anything else about Mithraism, is that Indra is a deva. Indra, Indra is the chief of the devas, the king of the gods, like Zeus, right? Mitra is a Ashura or Titan. And so Mitra Varuna, these are titanic figures. So it's not that, you know, uh, these figures, Indra and Mitra, were sort of like worshipped together. They're opposed to each other. They're the leading figures of two opposed pantheons, a pantheon of devas or gods and a pantheon of asuras. Um, and, you know, th this is also relevant to the eventual differentiation of a united Indo-Iranian community into Indians on the one hand and Iranians on the other, where the Iranians take the gods of the Hindus and they demonize them. And they worship the Titans instead, who are considered demonic by the Hindus. So Mitra winds up becoming the most important god to the Iranians, whereas from the Hindu perspective, he's a kind of demonic figure, uh, you know, in, in, a, you know um, in the discourse of the original Sanskrit Aryan religion, he's a... Uh, figure associated sort of with the hell hellish realms and you know uh the underworld and so forth so now you this reminds me of greek mythology with the titans and the uh and what are the other um the other ones are called the, the gods i guess the, or the olympian gods and olympian, right, right right yeah i mean it, it shouldn't just remind you it's the same thing you know the greeks and the the uh indians and iranians were all one people they were a people called the Yamanaya, um, or the Proto-Indo-Europeans, and they were basically centered around the Black Sea region and then migrated in every which direction, uh, some of them going into what became Greece, some of them going down into the Iranian plateau and settling there, and others going even further to the east and ultimately um, building a civilization in northern India. So this is fascinating. I was just going to ask you that. I was going to you you literally jumped in right before I was going to ask you. Maybe there's a, a culture that they both come from, which makes sense. The Yamana, and I've heard of this Yamanana, uh, people that live around the Black Sea region. 
uh, in between the Caspian Sea and the Black Sea. And there, I guess there is a giant flood there right around like, I don't know, 4,000, 5,000 BC. And so it forced everybody to sort of migrate in all these different directions. Some of them went down to Mediterranean. The other ones went down to the Indus. And uh, it kind of explains not only language, because linguists point to this all the time. Linguists are like, well, you know, the Sanskrit is very closely related to Germanic, uh, nor- uh, these Nordic uh, languages. And you can sort of see it like it's sort of like obvious that they all sort of come from one area. And it's very people think out of Africa. And that's like the only thing people think about. But really, there was this huge culture. And you, like you said, the Yamanana or however I, I probably pronounced it wrong. And but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the uh, recent um, more precise studies of population genetics also support this. It's very clear now that um, the migration patterns of the Indo-Europeans, uh, as, as they were hypothesized by linguists beginning in the 1700s, are fairly accurate. Now we have you know, supporting evidence from genetics that shows that you know, the Greeks, the Iranians, uh, the Italians also, um, and the Indians, you know, and so forth. all of the various European, Iranian, and Indic peoples come from a single origin, and that they basically migrated outwards from uh, the area north of the Black Sea, um, Ukraine, basically. Right. So, so then you get this sort of this pantheon uh, theology where there's. It's, for some reason, it's always centered around 12. I don't know where that 12 comes from. Um, maybe you could touch on oh, that. The constellations. Yeah, yeah. So you get the 12 constellations. And um, Mithra, though, Mithra seems to be the one name that stays where it's at. But I, I, I think Mithra's name changes in North mythology, but that's way later anyway. But um, my question is, is Mithra a sun god? What is exactly is Mithra? You know, that's a damn good question, and it's not an easy one to answer, actually. Um, First of all, one thing we have to recognize is that anytime we discuss Mithraism, we're reconstructing a dead religion. And not only is it a dead religion, it's a religion that even in the time, you know, even in its heyday, was shrouded in secrecy and was, uh, you know, the most esoteric and occulted, probably, of the ancient um, or or classical uh, religions. So it's very difficult to reconstruct uh, what exactly um, Mithraism consisted of. And then, of course, there's the question of the evolution of Mithraism from, you know, northern India to, you know, ancient Iran to late classical Rome and so forth, okay? Um, So throughout that whole evolutionary span, there are people who very closely associated Mithra with the sun. And... Some people even think that Mithra started out in the Sanskrit context as a sun god. But there's a Sanskrit sun god, uh, a Vedic sun god, Surya, which is a different figure. And when you look carefully at the structure of the Mithraic myths in Iran, you see that Mithra is not the sun. Uh, Mithra is the solar charioteer, or the bringer of the dawn, which is interesting because, you know, we have a bringer of the dawn figure in the West, 
right? The light, exactly. The light that comes before the sun rises, the morning star. And so I think there's something to be said for an association between Mithra and Lucifer, especially because, again, going back to Mitra Varuna, Mitra is a kind of androgynous uh, figure or hermaphroditic kind of figure um, originally, which then gets split off into a male uh, emanation, as it were, and a female, you know, emanation. Uh, in other words, Mitra Varuna, or later Mitra and Anahita in the Iranian context. But remember that in terms of the bringer of the dawn, you have also Lucifer and Venus, the morning star and the evening star, which are in fact the same entity. So, you know, I would suggest that uh, Mithra is not the sun. He, he's a solar deity, but he's, he's rather the bringer of the dawn. You know what's fascinating? Uh, I'm, I can't, I'm pretty sure it's the Mahabharata, but I could be wrong. Sort of guessing on this. It's one of the Hindu epics, and it talks about, uh, not Krishna, but Krishna's other form, which is uh, Vishnu. And Vishnu's praying, and they're asking, Vish, how, who is Vishnu praying to? We pray to Vishnu. Who is Vishnu praying to? And Vishnu says, Vishnu's praying to Varuna. And that's like, whoa, Varuna must be high up there. If, if, if Vishnu's praying to Varuna, Varuna must be some mega god. You know what I mean? And I, I thought that was pretty fascinating. Yeah, in terms of Varuna, you know, not, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't want to jump the gun too much and go hundreds of years forward in terms of history, but whatever. It's not, we're not engaged in a history lesson here, so right. who cares? Uh, in terms of Varuna, Another interesting thing is that this Typhonian storm goddess fits very well with the fact that Mithra, uh, Mithraism was the religion of the Cilician pirates, the first uh, major piracy force in the Mediterranean Sea, which was a serious rival of the Roman navy, were a group of uh, pirates fielded by the Parthians by the second major Iranian empire, uh, fielded by the Parthians into the Mediterranean. And they were Mithraists, and in fact, they acted as the primary conduit for the spread of Mithraism from Iran into the Roman Empire. Uh, not, you know, across the battlefields, uh, where the Romans and the Parthians were constantly waging war against one another, but through the elites in the port cities, the Cilician pirates were wheeling and dealing with the elites in the Roman port cities, and this was one of the main conduits for the spread of Mithraism into the Roman Empire. In any case, though, the fact, you know, people think of Mithra, and then, you know, they think of pirates on the sea, and shouldn't these pirates be worshipping, like, some Starbucks-like mermaid kind of goddess figure, whatever? Well, they were, because there's this other side of Mithra, namely Varuna, which is a kind of Typhonian storm goddess, which the Iranians later referred to as Anahita. So there's that. I, I've also heard that Varuna has a relation to Arenos, some sort of a linguistic connection there. But I also, I want to ask you this. I've been actually, this is the question that I wanted to ask you. The word soldier has S-O-L in the beginning. And I know that Persian has very closely related to Germanic. And so is uh, Sanskrit. And I'm wondering, because I know that Mithra is associated with Sol Invictus. 
later on because you know we like we t- we already touched on the whole is Mithra sun god is it not but later on when it sort of becomes more of a in, more of a soul soul invictus figure I, is that word soldier have anything to do with soul invictus it's a good question it could because well, well first of all i mean soul invictus is a title of mithra okay it's it, the the unconquerable or undying sun which by the way is not the sun in the sky if you think about it the sun in the sky does die and it you know from from an ancient uh in an ancient way of thinking the sun dies and is reborn every day this is a turn of phrase heraclitus uses in his writings and you see it in in various ancient texts in various cultures the soul invictus is the sun which never sets Hmm. which is an occult phrase that's used in Plato and it's used in, in other writings. I mean, it's also been referred to as the black sun. Hmm. And uh, so, so in any case, uh, without going too deep into that rabbit hole, um, to answer your initial question, Mithraism has always been a military religion. From the very beginning, it was a, Mithra was a deity adopted by the soldier class. Probably the Kshatriyas, the warrior caste in the Hindu caste system, were worshippers of Mitra from the very beginning. Certainly in ancient Iran, uh, the military worshipped Mitra. We have records of that from the Greeks. Um, even uh, in Achaemenid inscriptions, it's clear that uh, you know Mitra was revered by the by the ancient Persian military, and um, you know, more than any other deity, more than, let's say, Ahura Mazda, once Zoroastrianism became established. But then uh, when we get into the grades of initiation in Roman Mithraism, the, um, uh, what is it, the third grade of, of initiation is the grade of the soldier. Hmm. And so, you know, soul, soldier, maybe there's a connection there. Because, you know, not only was it a military religion, but there's actually a grade of initiation, the grade of the soldier. There he goes. Uh, which, you know, not incidentally is where a lot of the um, the rites for uh, confirmation in the Catholic Church and the Ash Wednesday ritual come from. This slap on the face that the Catholic priests give someone during a confirmation that comes from the grade of the soldier. They would smack the soldier in the face, and they would also put an ashen cross on his forehead. And the ashen cross on the forehead has nothing to do with a crucifix or you know uh, a, a cross that people were crucified on. The ashen cross is a re- reference to the um, celestial equator crossing the uh, ecliptic. It's okay, so. Now, this takes us into the heart of the Mithraic mystery. The celestial equator and the ecliptic are separated by 23 degrees. And, you know, this is what causes the phenomenon where uh, over the course of 2,000 some odd years, the sun rises into a different constellation. Precession of the equinox. Yeah, exactly. On the morning of the spring equinox. In other words, the precession of the equinoxes, the changing of the zodiacal ages. And so this ashen cross that they would put on the soldier's forehead during the, uh, you know, initiation into the grade of the soldier, 
represented cosmic time. And the reason it's ashen is because at the end of the zodiacal cycle, the world is supposed to burn. The whole planet is supposed to burn. Now, the world, world would be consumed by fire. There'd be a global conflagration, which is something you see also in the writings of Heraclitus. Um, and it's certainly an idea that um, I, I would say, you know, uh, is adopted by Zoroastrianism from out of an older Mithraism, the idea that at the apocalypse, the world is going to be consumed by fire and uh, sort of alchemically purified, you know, as if the world were being subjected to an alchemical furnace and the lead of this world is thereby transmuted into gold and beings achieve their perfect forms and so forth, right? So this, this cross is the celestial equator and the ecliptic, and it's ashen because it's a reference to uh, the, the apocalyptic um, consumption of the world by fire and the purification of all beings thereby. Uh, so, yeah, so that's the initiation uh, rite for the grade of the soldier, and there may indeed be an etymological connection there. So this is fascinating because Mithra, I'm flipping through the 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 Zoroastrian text, the um the Zendavesta. I was gonna say Gothas, but it's not. This is Zendavesta. And all of a sudden I'm reading through it for the first time. And I didn't I, I'm thinking this is a monotheistic religion and there's just Ahura Mazda and Anger Ma. All of a sudden I get to a page and it says Mithra, the mediator. What what is going on? And there's Mithra again. So Mithra being a mediator plus the 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 uh, morning star, if you go to the Bible, what is Jesus? The mediator, also titled the morning star. And but, so I don't know. We, we can argue about how Christianity came about, if Jesus was a real person or not. That doesn't matter at all. What matters is but by the time it gets to Constantine, he's taking the rights of Mithra. And I, and I want to hear what you think about this. He's obvious, I think, obviously taking the rights of Mithra, the December 25th. And he, I think he had a decision to make. He had to make an executive decision. Look, we have, we're split. Our soldiers, they need a religion. They, they're not going to go out and fight for us if they don't think they're going to die and go to a heaven for their honor, for dying. And, and they, you know, that's, that's one of those things that you hype up your soldiers with. So you got these Christian soldiers, you got these Mithraic soldiers. How do we bring the two together? I think Constantine would be, um, masterfully brought the two together by bringing the rights in but also applying the the uh scriptures of the christians and making this sort of universalist religion what do you think about that obviously the case look <laughs> first of all mithra is born on what became christmas okay number one mithra is born on the winter solstice which was then shifted due to calendrical changes, right, to, to where Christmas is. Mithra was born of a virgin. The Mithras celebrated a communion where they uh, uh, drank wine, which, by the way, their wine was spiked with Amanita, Muscaria, uh, mushrooms, uh, which grow under what kind of trees? Evergreen trees. What's the color scheme of Amanita muscaria mushrooms? Red and white, and then the evergreen is green. Well, there's your Christmas color scheme. Okay, I, actually, that's number that's four right there. Okay, uh, and by the way, also in that communion feast, they would eat bread 
that was circular in form and inscribed by a cross. Here's your communion wafer and also the breaking of, uh, of bread, right? In, you know. uh, and then you have um, all of the uh, iconography of the bishops and the cardinals and so forth, you know, with these tall hats that they wear. Well, this is a, you know, preservation of the Phrygian cap, the, the red Mithraic cap. Uh, and then the robes, even, you know, the red robes and so forth. Those were the robes of Mithraic Magi. There it is right there. Right? Yeah. I mean, there are uh, actually mosaics showing the three Magi coming to the birth of Jesus, and they're wearing these, you know, Mithraic uh, caps and uh, robes, uh, red, red caps and robes, um, which, which is another thing, right? I mean, it's so obvious. Look, why do you have three magi coming to the birth of Jesus? And by the way, I, I, I think that people who uh, try to take that as evidence for some kind of a Zoroastrian influence on Christianity are mistaken. These were Mithraic magi who appear, whether you want to take that story as literal or not or whatever, right. even if it's a, a literary device, the intention is to depict Mithraic priests because... At the time of the supposed birth of Jesus, you had the Parthian Empire in power in Iran, and the Parthians, unlike the Achaemenids before them or the Sasanians after them, the Parthians were Mithraists. They were not Zoroastrians. So, you know, the Magi at that time in Iran, to be a Magus meant to be a Mithraic priest. So you have these Mithraists coming, you know, at the birth of this, this character. Uh, and then, you know, when you start to, to get into the, uh, the other thing I forgot to mention is baptism was also practiced in, in Mithraism in connection to Anahita, the water goddess Anahita. Yeah. So you have all of these elements of Mithraic ritual. I mentioned the, the initiation of the grade of the soldier earlier. All of these elements of uh, ritual and initiation and so forth that were borrowed from Mithraism straight into Christianity. But then when you get into the more esoteric teachings attributed to Jesus and the Gospels, you also find, you know, um, Mithraic metaphysics and uh, essentially uh, secret doctrines that far predate Christianity and that you find, you know, um, in Parthian, uh, Iran, and, uh, you know, perhaps going back even further. Here's one right now for you. There is a poet, and you probably might know the name. I can't think of his name right now, but it's somewhere in like the second or third century BC, maybe even closer to the first, maybe early, like whatever. But he wrote a story about Mithridates the sixth having been his birth being signified by a star from the east saying here, uh, a Messiah is going to be born. And they said they, they had a genealogy, I guess, was written out that brought his um, his uh, his genealogy from on one side of his family, Alexander the Great, who everyone is like a world, like everyone. That's like the greatest it gets. And then on the other hand, Cyrus the Great from Persia. So here we have this Mithridates character whose name literally means Mithra's abode, I think, right? And he is being told as the star in the east signifying his birth world messiah it can't get any closer than that so a few things about that 
Um, by the way, the, the name uh, Mithridates uh, or Mehrdad in the original Persian means either given by Mithra or Mithra's justice, Mithra's law. Da the word data uh, is where we get the word data from in English. Our word data comes from the Persian data. And data means literally the given, but figuratively law. And so it's Mithra's law or Mithra's justice. Uh, and a, b a bunch of Parthian kings had this name, Mithridates. It was a very popular name for the Parthian kings in particular. Uh, and then Mithridates the Mithridates II was that guy who fielded the uh, pirate navy in the Mediterranean that I was talking about earlier. He set up, yeah, he set up the Cilician pirates as a black ops navy. Wow. Mithridates the sixth, which is the one you were talking about, which they get, you know, constructed a gene genealogy for him, uh, you know, that would bring together the Greeks and the Persians, saying he was descended both from Cyrus and from Alexander. That Mithridates the sixth is responsible for the Mithraic symbol of the skull and crossbones winding up on poison bottles because he was infamous for assassinating people by means of poisoning. Poison king. poison king. And the main symbol of Mithraism is actually the skull and crossbones, wow. which, which is, by the way, how it wound up on pirate flags, too, because the Cilician yeah. pirates flew this thing, you know, in the Mediterranean at the time of the Roman Empire. Uh, and what the skull and the crossbones that Mithridates VI uh, wound up, uh, you know, having it associated with poison bottles in all of our minds. What it actually means is, again, the plane of the zodiac crossing the celestial equator, those are the bones. The bones are supposed to be separated by 23 degrees, exactly. And the skull over the bones, because what is this? This is time, right? It's cosmic time. Well, the skull over the bones is also referenced to time, namely as death. In other words, this cosmos is a meat grinder, right? Time kills. And so what this skull over the crossed bones uh, is meant to suggest is that we live in the realm of time and death, governed by a figure that the Persians call Zorvan, or that the Greeks referred to as Kronos, Right, Saturn in his guise, not as a planet Saturn, but as the god of time, the lord of time. And the central, uh, I, I don't know, myth or teaching of Mithraism, the, the central mythic image of Mithraism, which, you know, um, is also the core teaching of the religion, is the idea that Mithra shows us a path to overpowering the Lord of Time. Okay, so Mithra supposedly is able to transcend the earthly realm, stand out over the planet, and shift the earth, uh, there, thereby changing the zodiacal age, right, and overpowering the Lord of Time namely Zorvan or Kronos. That's the central teaching of Mithraism, is how to overcome the power of time and death and not be subject to fate. Because, you know, uh, the Greeks and, and uh, pretty much all other ancient people saw the movement of the stars 
as the uh, as visible fate, basically, as a testimony to the fact that we have no free will and our lives are governed by these, uh, you know, merciless and uh, unchanging celestial forces. Well, there was one phenomenon in the ancient world that once it was noticed uh, was an exception to that celestial regularity, and that's the procession of the equinoxes. So these people got it into their heads that Mithra is responsible for the procession of the equinoxes, and what that is is Mithra shifting the axis of the world uh, as a basically testimony to the fact that we can have power over um, the Lord of, of time, uh, who's responsible for the movement, the regular movement of the planets and the stars. So that is so, there's so much to unpack here because you, this, there's an archetype here that seems to fit in a bunch of different cultures. And there's this idea of going against sort of like this father time figure. So you got uh, Zeus and Prometheus. You got, and, and now the, the Gnostic religion of Christianity, there's the Demiurge and then there's like, you know, whatever there's like a million different gnostic religions but you also got jesus who is sort of going against the law in a weird way so there's sort of like this anti status quo thing going on there you sort of see that with dionysus as well he's sort of a troublemaker what is this sort of an archetype there no doubt about it no doubt about and the thing about mithra is that he's the oldest version of the archetype Older even than Prometheus. And I'm convinced, I mean, look, uh, I've just launched this whole movement, Prometheism, right? Um, uh, which, frankly, actually goes back to Prometheus and Atlas. I mean, I, I sort of developed a more explicitly political manifesto form of it in the book Prometheism, but really my focus on Prometheus goes back to my first book, Prometheus and Atlas. But in any case, when you uh, go back through the history of mythology, you see that, first of all, Mitra is an older figure than Prometheus. But secondly, the symbolism, the iconography, and the meaning behind the myths of Mitra and of Prometheus are so similar that I've come to be convinced they're the same figure. That these are two different, and this becomes especially clear when you look at the uh, stories about how Mitra is actually Perseus. Hmm. And, the, okay, so these Greeks came down and, and colonized Iran, right? I mean, Alexander the Great conquered the Achaemenid Persian Empire, then his generals divided up the empire amongst themselves. And you had for, what was it, about 120 years, give or take, because different areas, you know, were under Greek rule for longer than others. Uh, you had this Seleucid period in Iran, which was a, you know, Hellenistic colonization of the old Persian Empire. And so then when the Parthians kicked the Greeks out of Iran and reestablished native Iranian rule, they're left with a lot of Hellenistic culture in Iran, and they need to find a way to hybridize, you know, Greek and Persian mythology. So they, actually, they don't invent this story, but because we can see from Herodotus 
and some of the other Greek historians that even during the Persian Wars, Darius was trying to kind of sell this bullshit to the Greeks as a way to, you know, get certain, you know, Greek city-states to ally with him. So it, it's older than the Parthians, but in any case, they bring back this story in a very big way. I mean, they basically endorse it as state propaganda that Perseus is Mithra, and they would have images of Perseus on their coins. And according to the story, Perseus stole fire from Olympus and brought it down to Earth, where he entrusted it with the Magi, uh, establishing the, the temples of the Magi as, a, as an eternal hearth for the heavenly fire on Earth, which, you know, in ancient Iranian religion, both Zoroastrianism and Mithraism, uh, ritual is centered around an ever-burning flame. Right. And moreover, it was said that the Persians were descended from Perses, the son of Perseus by Andromeda. Which is the name Perse, Parsi. Right. So, so point being that when you look at certain elements of the uh, myth of Mithra, and compare them to the Prometheus mythos, um, and not just elements of the myth, but you know the deeper meaning and what it is that these figures are calling us to embrace as our ethos, right? I think that a reasonable case could be made that uh, you know these are different names for the same figure. Yeah, so that's fascinating. So I I noticed that. This archetype is very especially big everywhere where you got this. Well, here, for example, Zoroastrian seems to be like the forerunner of this new monotheistic worldview. It seems like. And there's even a, a verse in the Zen of Esther, like I was talking about earlier. It seems like Christianity ripped from. I don't know if they just may, maybe I'm wrong, wrong, but there's a part where Zoroaster is going through, I think, the desert. Pretty sure it's the desert. And uh, Anger Manu approaches him and is basically like, worship me and I'll give you everything. And Zoroaster just immediately starts hymning, doing hymns to Ahura Mazda. And then uh, Anger Manu can't handle it and it's, it just leaves. And it sounds like the story in, the, in Matthew where Jesus is in the desert for 40 days and Satan approaches him and says, hey, worship me. So um, I think, and I want to hear if you have anything to add to this, pretty obvious that the Persian the theology and philosophy influenced the West a lot. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I've written about this extensively. Um, I actually think that Western civilization is inconceivable without what it owes to Iran in various periods, you know, um, beginning with the, the age of Zarathustra and, and Cyrus and Darius, right, of the uh, ancient Persian Empire's impact on the developmental trajectory of Greek culture, but then continuing through Parthian influence on the Romans, on the pagan Romans, right, and then Sasanian influence on the Byzantines. Absolutely. And then, as the Roman Empire collapses, they always talk about these barbarian invasions, you know, of the collapsing Roman Empire. What they don't tell you is that these weren't all Germanic barbarians. In fact, you know, about half of these barbarians were Iranians who were pouring into the collapsing Roman Empire from Eastern Europe where they had already settled. Scythians and Sarmatians, 
who come to be known in Europe as Allens. Right. And these Allens, uh, first of all, physically they looked a lot like Germans. Mm -hmm. They were tall, uh, fair, uh, fair, fair-haired, and uh, you know, uh, pale people. And um, so, so first of all, they looked a lot like the Germans. But then they also influenced uh, Goth culture in in a very significant way to the point where archaeologists that open up you know Sarmatian or Scythian tombs can sometimes not tell them apart from goth tombs right. and so and at one point the goths and the Alans even co-founded a kingdom together in Spain called goth Alania which we now pronounce Catalonia that's goth Alania it was the joint kingdom of these Iranians and these Germans wow. in Spain and so and then in during the Middle Ages Actually, the aristocratic classes in Europe were constituted of these Alans. And, and the Roman Empire, the Western Roman Empire, right? Yeah. So the Merovingians and the Carolingians and so forth had lots of Alan scholars among their ranks. And the, uh, the most scholastic of the medieval priests, of course, you know, during the Middle Ages, there, there were really no independent universities or anything like that. The Catholic Church shut down all of the pagan academies, right? Uh, Justinian, I think, was the last um, of the Caesars. Uh, I mean, Justinian shut down the last of the academies during his reign as Caesar. Right. Uh, so the only universities you had in medieval Europe were basically run by the church. They were church schools. And it turns out that the most erudite and productive uh, scholars of you know, the, the Middle Ages, were often of Allen descent as well. So you had, you know, aristocrats, feudal lords, scholars, who were all of this Iranian, quote-unquote, barbarian stock that poured into Europe during the Middle Ages. And finally, if you want to talk about, you know, the broad scope of Iranian influence on Western civilization, there's the uh, influence on the development of science and technology from the... Um, the scientists of the so-called Islamic Golden Age, which is a terrible misnomer because about 90% of these guys were Persians. Their native language was Persian. They only wrote in Arabic because they were living under Arab occupation, uh, under an Islamic caliphate, which had, you know, conquered Iran. And so they had to write treatises in, German, in, in, uh, in Arabic, but they were Persians. A good comparison to that, um, the English, they uses the Latin alphabet but it's Germanic language. There you go. Like, there's another example of like Roman influence on the Germanic peoples, the North, the Anglo-Saxons, and making them use the alphabet. Same thing with the Persians. Yeah, unfortunately, in the case of the Persians, it wasn't just an alphabet. Uh, Persian is written in the Arabic alphabet, which again is very unfortunate because it's actually a script that's poorly suited to expressing the Persian language. Um, and Mani. Uh, had, you know, the, the Gnostic Mani, right. um, the founder of Manichaeism, right. uh, had invented this extraordinarily precise script for expressing the Persian language, which had a letter for every sound that can basically come out of somebody's mouth. And this uh, Manichaean script, which also really looks beautiful, it's where all this, you know, Arabic calligraphy, right, it all is based on Manichaean calligraphy, the style. Um, if you go, look at original Arabic, Kufic Arabic, it's 
let's just say inelegant, okay? Uh, all this, these flourishes of, you know, calligraphic beauty that you see coming from out of the Persianate world goes back to the Manichaean alphabet. Anyway, yeah. So we had this great alphabet in Iran back then, and it was replaced by this very poor Arabic system. But the situation was even worse uh, during the epoch of these scientists because not only were they writing in an Arabic script, they had to write these treatises in the Arabic language because the caliphs paying for the scientific research were Arabs. And so these people were native speakers of Persian writing in a language that was foreign to them. Uh, in any case, my point was that that's another huge period um, when uh, tremendous intellectual capital was produced in Iran. Iran was the capital of science and technology in the world from about 900 to 1100 AD when the Turks and Mongols started coming in. Uh, and during that period, they built up all this intellectual capital that ultimately found its way back into Europe when the Medicis and other patrons of the Renaissance started buying up these, uh, you know, books coming from the East and building independent libraries and, you know, uh, universities and so forth. And so this is all, you see how history sort of flows into each other. It all, everything ties together because you're talking about these Goths, right? And they're mentioned in the Greek Alexander romances, Goth and Magoth, which gives you the right away, it tells you that this is Gog and Magog from the Bible. And so when, and I, and I know you've written a lot about this subject, the Islamic era coming up from, is like a Persian co-op uh, program. And um, this is fascinating because if you read the Quran, you notice, I notice something. It's speaking to a certain audience, which is the Eastern Byzantine Empire. And it's trying to capture the hearts and minds of those people. For example, the, the chapter called Al-Kaf, the cave, there's two stories in there that are literally ripped right from Byzantine legends. One of them, dual carnate, the horned one, the two horned one. Everyone knows that story, or at, at least everyone back then would have known that story. That's the story of Alexander the Great uh, putting up a barrier to keep out Gog and Magog out. So they didn't say the word. They're not going to say Alexander the Great. They're going to be subtle about it. In the same way, if you go to like a, um, a fortune teller, right? A fortune teller might look you up on Facebook and find something out about you. And like, this is how they cheat. So they know, they know who your grandma's name is, right? They know something about your grandma that no one else would know. But they had this little bit of information, right? So they're going to slip out some stuff like the person I'm talking to um, loves the color red. Oh, that's my grandmother. Oh, how'd you know that? Well, the same, the Quran's doing this. They're talking stories. They're not, if they said the story of Alexander the Great, it'd be like, okay, we already know that's why are you telling us that. But by not saying the name Alexander the Great, the Byzantines are like, oh, God is revealing a story about our great Alexander the Great. This is this must be from God. Then, then even even before that, in the same chapter, this story of the sleepers in the cave. Seven sleepers in a cave went to sleep for three hundred years, woke up in a pious age. What we know that story? That's the story from uh, Constantinople. This must be the word of God. So this is so when you start to put it together, you're like, wow, they were putting together scripture to capture the hearts and minds of the people of the Eastern Roman Empire. And it worked because look at the work, look at the Eastern Mediterranean. Now look at Egypt. Now look at North Africa. Now all Islamic. 
mission accomplished. What do you think about that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, but the other thing to keep in mind is that um, the Eastern Roman Empire wasn't the only target of the Quran. The Quran was also targeting, uh, you know, the Sassanid Persian Empire. Absolutely. And um, I mean, I've written about this at length in my book, Iranian Leviathan. I think that potentially one of the most convoluted and cryptic conspiracies in history uh, is the intrigue surrounding Muhammad and the Arab Muslim invasion of both Sassanid Persia and then the Byzantine Empire. I think that uh, there were some machinations going on there that were incredibly convoluted. And uh, it's possible that uh, certain things also got out of hand and that things went in a direction that, you know, wasn't necessarily intended. That sounds very cryptic. Let me clarify for your audience. Um, there was a there was an intense internal rivalry in the Persian in the Second Persian Empire, the Sassanid Empire, the Third Empire of Iran, the, the middle one, the Parthians. They weren't Persians; they were Scythians who came down, Scythian Iranians who came down and built the Second Empire of Iran. But the Sasanians were Persians, and uh, in their period of running the Persian Empire, there was a deep internal schism between them and the Parthians who had ruled before them, because it's not like the Parthians just disappeared. They were still the predominant feudal landowners in the country. The Parthian houses were still the most powerful houses in Iran. Uh, it was a kind of like Game of Thrones type of situation where you had all these powerful houses and you needed to like get the houses to agree on something in order to have effective state policy. And also these houses supplied, you know, their armies for service in the national military. And so the Sassanid state relied on Parthian knights in a lot of cases to fight military battles. Uh, but the Parthians wanted to come back into power. They wanted to actually, you know, regain the throne. And so there was a lot of internal intrigue and, this is actually relevant to our general subject matter because the Parthians remained Mithraists mm -hmm. and the Sassanids tried to impose a Zoroastrian state orthodoxy for the first time. During the Achaemenid Empire, the first Persian Empire, Zoroastrianism was there, but it wasn't an official state religion. During the Sassanid period, very much, you know, along the lines of what Constantine did, the, the Sasanians attempted to turn Zoroastrianism into an orthodox Iranian state religion. And these Parthian Mithraists ferociously resisted that. So I argue in Iranian Leviathan that the fingerprints of some of these Parthian feudal houses and of some of these Mithraic Magi are on the Quran and the prophetic mission of Muhammad. And in particular, this character Salman the Persian Salman of Farsi, who uh, people who were Muhammad's detractors claimed he was the one putting the Quran into Muhammad's head and that, you know, he was the puppet master on the scene there, right? Wow. Um, he in particular seems to me to be connected to some of these Parthian uh, feudal houses. And 
So I think that there were a lot of machinations involved at the origin of Islam that have been uh, successfully hidden and poorly understood, and that um, it, it's possible that, uh, you know, things got out of hand. Let me just leave it at that. Yeah, it's fascinating. And, and like, I was, I was getting into the... Uh, how they were sort of attacking the Eastern Roman Empire. And, but I totally can see how it's even more, uh, it's even more um, targeting the Persian Empire. Um, and it explains why all of a sudden there's myths like, why is Jinn end up in the Quran? Well, sure enough, in the Scythian myths, there's Jinn in there. So they're, what they're doing in these myths is they're, telling these they're they're injecting subtly injecting stories and myths within the text that people would hear and be oh yeah oh yeah i know that oh yeah that makes oh yeah god would say that that's got to be true and it whoever put this together whether it was muhammad or salman or ali or whoever they it wasn't, it wasn't muhammad muhammad was I, I, yeah, you know, I, I, let me stop right there. I don't want to. I don't want to get you killed. I'm willing to <laughs> out and say certain things, but I don't care. It, no, yeah, he, I, I actually know where you're going. He, with this. The guy was a moron. I'm sorry, he was a moron. And I, I hear, I hear this all the time, and I, I, I think there's some truth to this. Like he was, <laughs> I hear from what I'm reading and putting together, is that he sort of was a, uh, a good. T- so he's sort of um, historical. He's a. Uh, a merchant, so he's going around from city to city. So he's a perfect target for somebody to go carry a message. If he's going from Mecca to Egypt to here to there, you got this guy, right? And uh, apparently, he was very easy to manipulate and get him to do certain things. And you got behind the scenes this Solomon or Solomon guy, who is really the one putting together. He's really the voice of Allah, and if you come, if it comes down to it, yeah. Look. Um... <clears throat> partly because of materialist reductionism, which, which wants to dismiss everything psychic, you know, as pseudoscience. Uh, even in theology, there's, there's very much that current and has been since, you know, like rationalist Protestant theology in the 1800s, there's a de-emphasis of, on miracles and a, a, uh, an intent to interpret everything miraculous as merely symbolic in the Bible and all this, Right. Uh, partly because of that, Muhammad has been badly misunderstood. And people think that Muhammad was like some kind of genius statesman that we're dealing with like, uh, you know, some kind of basically, um, let's see, what would be, what would be a, good, uh, a good example? I mean, I don't want to say Moses, but like some great religious figure fused with Caesar and that that's Muhammad. You know, he's like a religious prodigy, and he's also a master statesman, you know, who can go in there and create a constitution for the city of Medina and all this business. I don't buy any of it. The guy, I mean, I I believe the Muslims when they say he was illiterate. I mean, the guy was, which by the way, you know, there were a lot of literate people back in those days. This was before the dark ages of that region, and there were a lot of literate people back in those days. All right? People don't think of medieval Europe, and no, there was a lot of literacy. In any case, Muhammad did not have the education, the intellect, the training, or any of the qualifications to come up with the Quran, first of all, and second of all, to act as such an effective statesman in Medina. The guy was a puppet of various forces uh, 
that sent Salman the Farsi and sent other people to guide Muhammad. One of the hadiths, uh, these, the hadiths are the oral traditions preserved by the companions of the Prophet in Islam, right? And one of the most well-substantiated hadiths talk about how Muhammad, these white-robed figures would regularly come to meet with Muhammad, and he would go into a tent with them and sit with them in a circle, and no one else was allowed to come in hmm. when they were visiting. And then, you know, they would get up and leave after a while. And so, you know, whether it was Salman Farsi or whether it was these robed figures, mysterious robed figures who would come to meet with Muhammad, or whether it was a detachment of Parthian knights wearing green from head to toe, which are described as an army of angels that turned Muhammad's fortune at the Battle of Badr, I think he had a lot of help. And people really set things up for him. Um, he was a, a vehicle for various unseen forces that really you know, changed the course of human history, perhaps for the worst. It also makes you wonder, because this makes a lot of sense from... From the Parthian standpoint, Christianity is booming, right? It's 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 taking over the Mediterranean, taking over Egypt. What do we do? We need to do something. We need to co-opt this movement somehow. Now, Muhammad, he drops dead randomly. He just said, get sick and die. It makes you wonder, it was, was his job fulfilled enough to the point where we don't need this guy anymore. And if he talks anymore, he might screw this thing up. Let's get rid of him. That, that makes a lot of sense to me, uh, especially considering the fact that initially Muhammad was absolutely terrified when the Quran started coming into his head. And, and this is another thing going back to, you know, reductionist materialism. Look, uh, I mean, I'm not that familiar with your audience, but I can tell I can I can tell them one thing. Until you accept the scientific legitimacy of extrasensory perception and psychokinesis and, you know, the things that parapsychologists have studied in a laboratory setting for over a century now, since the time of William James, you cannot understand the first thing about a phenomenon like Islam, okay? Muhammad may have been a moron, but he was a medium. Mm -hmm. A lot of mediums are morons. Actually, mediums tend to be morons. <laughs> I, you know, there, there's almost an inverse correlation between psychic ability and intelligence, you, and which makes a lot of sense because psychic ability has to do with the subconscious. It's an irrational cognitive process. And there tends to be this correlation between hypertrophy of the analytical intellect and atrophy of psychic ability. This was noticed as far back as writers like Hegel and Schelling, uh, you know, that, you know, it seemed like it was the most uneduc uneducated, unanalytic people in the world, like the peasants in the Scottish Highlands who had the strongest psychic ability, right? So Muhammad was a medium. And this is all going back to what you were saying about, you know, the circumstances of Muhammad's death. Muhammad was a medium. And when the Quran first came to him while he was hiking in these mountains outside of Mecca, the guy thought that he was, he ran, first of all, he was terrified out of his wits in this cave when Gabriel like comes up behind him and he starts hearing the verses of the Quran in his mind for the first time, home as fast as he can. And the first thing he says to his wife is, listen, I'm either losing my marbles or I've been possessed by Jim. And 
And then it's the wife's friends who are Christians that convince this guy that God is talking to him. He didn't want to believe it. So from the beginning, you have a guy who's not exactly reliable. I mean, he actually thinks that either he's being possessed by demons or he's out of his freaking mind, right? So it makes sense to me what you're suggesting, that maybe at a certain point, they didn't think they could rely on this guy anymore. And, you know, they needed him dead so that they could continue whatever project Islam, you know, was, was meant to uh, further. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And if you if you look at it from a like in hindsight, Islam masterfully worked. Like as much whether you like it or not, whether you hate the religion, whether you think it's the worst thing that ever happened in the world, those are all valid concerns. But it worked. Like look at so it's still to this day the fastest growing religion on the planet, and it's just. You look at it, you read, I read the entire Quran from cover to cover. It is just, I mean, it's like, it's repetitive. It's, there's really nothing. There's no substance at all. Allah, most merciful, most gracious. That's half the Quran right there. That's it. They said that a million times. And then that, for some reason, it worked though. It captures the hearts and minds of half the world. Mission accomplished. You almost can't even hate on it because you're like, Something's going on with this thing. Something out of the out of the ordinary is happening with this book, and it's they did something like you're talking about, and it it sure it sure worked. Yeah, um, there's a lot I could say about that, uh, but in a nutshell, I mean, this is a nominally Gnostic program, right? So <laughs> I would say it's archontic power is what it is. The Quran. Is quintessentially archontic in its power, um, and that's the force that was responsible for the spread of Islam, albeit uh, embodied by waves of first Arab, then Turkic, then Mongol uh, military forces that violently subjugated populations and forced this religion on them. Okay, so, you know, the Arab Muslim conquest of Iran was incredibly violent. But actually, it failed to convert the majority of the Iranian population in their heart of hearts to Islam. If you look at the so-called Islamic Golden Age, you know, from 900 until 1100, the Persians and other Iranians at that time didn't take Islam very seriously, which is one of the reasons why it's ridiculous to call it the Islamic Golden Age. It's it's an Iranian golden age under Arab occupation. But, you know, at that period, after the initial uh, Arab, you know, onslaught, after the Islamic conquest of Sasan and Iran, Islam had not really, as you put it, quote unquote, won the hearts and minds of the majority of Iranians. It was then the wave of Turks who, nobody imposed Islam on them. These Turks loved Islam. Somehow Islam just, you know, it was the best thing that, you know, had ever happened to them. These ter- they just embraced it with open arms. They really did they embrace did. it. And it won their hearts and minds. And then these brutal Turkic barbarians came in and slaughtered half of the Iranian population and really, you know, uh, I mean, just mercilessly imposed that religion on the country. This is when the Turks took over the caliphate. And they just took over the caliphate. And they kept Arabic as a liturgical language, but it went from being an Arab Muslim caliphate to being a Muslim caliphate run by Turks, 
This is the Seljuk period, the, the Seljuk Caliphate, yes. and um, you know, run from Baghdad. And so this is when really, I mean, Islam was you know uh, forcibly imposed on the majority of Iranian people, and then the Mongols come in on their on their you know on the tail of the Turks within a century, and. These Mongols who had been, I don't know, shamanists or maybe Vajrayana Buddhists realized that Islam is the most efficient theology for totalitarian political control and they adopted it. And if there was anyone left resisting Islam, I mean, that was the death knell right there. Exactly. And that that's what I was basically getting at. Because you have made a good point. Is like the so-called Islamic golden age. You read the literature from the time, the Shah Namah, the Book of the Kings, and it's like, wait a minute, this wasn't Islamic. This seems like it's pagan almost. They're talking about all these uh, just totally outside of Islamic uh, stuff in there. And there's even stuff about Alexander the Great in there. But um, I think you're right. I think the th I think what, what works about Islam, it's simple. And it's one God, one king, one ruler, one caliphate. It all seems to line up perfectly for a theocracy totalitarian uh way of life like you see in iran today basically it just spits that mold yeah that's right and um so to tie it all together this is what i wanted to say like you, you look around in these myths that pop up in certain times of of the uh of history so they, they sprout up and they seem to co-opt certain things for example baptism seems to be something very ancient. I mean, even in the ancient Hindu religions in the Vedic tradition, they're talking about baptizing in the uh, in the I think it's the Indus River, or maybe a different one. But um, and so there's these archetypes. This is big in Gnosticism. The Ganges. The Ganges, yes, and that's the name of the god Ganga. Again, she's like the she's the one who purifies your sins, which is so very. It's so um specific to to for someone to go in like it's one thing and say oh they both went in the river that's not but to go into a river to wash your sins away is very specific you can't deny that so what i'm getting at is there's these archetypes that seem to be effective in creating these myths that end up being uh instrument instrumental in these these ways of life where the, the archons you want to, if you want to call them are are constructing a reality in which that fabric of reality changed and then you get these neo characters who come in mithra dionysus osiris jesus and it seems to be this recurring thing and I, and then this is the last thing i want to touch on we're past an hour or so do you do you think there's something about different cultures sort of co-opting other ancient cultures into their own ways. You think it's like some sort of, there's some sort of like, I don't want to call it magic behind it, but you think there's some sort of power behind these, these uh, methods and these uh, um, narratives? Well, I mean, some of it is natural cultural evolution. We have to remember that First of all, every civilization that's ever existed, and this is a good reminder to nationalists, of which I am not one and never have been one. Uh, first, we have to remember that every civilization that's ever existed is hybrid in nature. 
civilizations arise when two or more different cultures are synthesized in some way. The synthesis can happen through violent conquest. And the conqueror can wind up adopting elements of the conquered people's culture. Uh, and, you know, they, they fuse in that way. Or it could be, uh, you know, through migration, intermarriage. Um, but in any case, whether you look, you know, in Europe or in Iran or anywhere else, the civilization as a higher order phenomenon emerges through the fusion of various cultures. Like, for example, Iranian civilization is a synthetic fusion of Persian, Scythian, Median. Now, these three are all ethnically Iranian still, but they were different cultures. But then also Babylonian uh, and to an extent... Um, uh, Vedic, maybe? Well, no, I was going to say, um, uh, well, certainly Elamite. And the, the Elamites and the Babylonians were closely connected but different cultures. Uh, but then to an extent also the culture of Anatolia. Oh, yeah. Before, okay, so, you know, there was a civilization, Lydia, in what's present-day Turkey or, you know, Anatolia. And the first major kingdom that Cyrus the Great conquered outside of Iran was the Lydian kingdom. So you had, And they were not Iranians. So you had all these different cultures fused together into the phenomenon that became Iranian civilization. Then in Europe, European civilization is born from out of the fusion of Greek culture, Italian culture, and some of the Germanic, you know, northern tribes. And so, so to an extent, I think that there's natural civilizational evolution that involves the adoption of the beliefs of one group of people by another group of people, uh, in the course of which those beliefs and practices are also transformed in some way, generally, right? But on another layer, you know, above that, um, I think you do have machinations taking place where there's deliberate social engineering. And that's certainly the case with the creation of Christianity, as we were discussing also with the case of, of Islam. Uh, there is... There are occult groups at work in the world and always have been throughout recorded history. And, you know, uh, many of them are engaged in large scale social engineering. So uh, that, I think, is also one way in which beliefs are transferred from one culture to another. I mean, in the case of Mithraism in particular, it's pretty clear that, you know, and by the way, this is no criticism of Mithraism. I actually find, you know, Mithraism very appealing. But there's no question that Mithraism was brought to Europe through various machinations and the orchestration of occult societies uh, through, you know, these Cilician pirates, through, uh, you know, various operatives that, you know, were sent to infiltrate the Roman military and uh, so forth. Yeah, and this is such a fascinating subject that I think we can literally have like eight hours on this. And I definitely want to continue this. There's so much more to be said on this topic of it's just it, it, even just like the Persian history is so rich, like the, the Achaemen and the Sassanids and the Parthians and how they sort of like roll into each other. We can get into that. And when next when you, I definitely want to have you back on. But for anybody who doesn't uh, who wants to know more about your work, just go to Amazon, type in Jason Rezidrajani, Iranian Leviathan. Prometheus and Atlas, Prometheism, all amazing 
works and you will not be uh you will be very much happy for, with those purchases thank you neil um yeah I'd, I'd love to have another conversation one topic we could explore sometime is uh basically the history of persian Nos- or iranian gnosticism because you know for your viewers who might not be familiar with it and you know they'll see this if they look into my writings no nation in history has been more Gnostic than Iran. I mean, the argument can, can definitely be made that in the first place, Gnosticism owes a fundamental debt to Iran that the Alexandrian phenomenon of Gnosticism would not have arisen but for Iranian influence, both Zoroastrian and Mithraic influence. And then when we get to Manichaeism and other forms of Gnosticism, that, I mean, for, you know, for God's sake... To be a heretic in medieval Europe was to be a manichae. They called all the heretics manichaeus. That was the generic brand, like calling somebody a witch. Um, so, you know, the history of Iran and the history of Gnosticism are inextricable from one another. And the most Gnostic nation in history uh, was Iran. At, at one point in the Sassanid period, you even had Gnostics take over the government in Iran. So that would be a subject that, you know, we could explore you know, in a subsequent conversation. That's definitely going to be the next topic we're going to get into. And uh, everyone stay tuned for that. Hit the bell, subscribe. And like I said before, check out Jason Rezogiorgiani on Amazon. Do you have a website, by the way? Yeah, it's just jasonrezogiorgiani.com. All one word, jasonrezogiorgiani.com. And it's got tabs that link to all my videos, all my books, and so forth. So that is in the description right now. And uh, thanks for coming on. And everybody, you have just attained true gnosis.